When I was in high school, there were a few things that I enjoyed more than playing football. But because I let football dominate my life and it became far more important to me than it should have been, I became very depressed and absolutely devastated when one of my coaches made the decision to switch me to a position that I didn't want to play. I hated the position he made me play. And there were more reasons than one for that, but the primary reason is because that the position I was required to play was a position with no glory. There was no praise in this position. It was just a blocking position. I would never catch a touchdown or complete a pass or make a tackle. I'd never hear my name over the intercom. would never have stats in the newspaper. Half the time, my friends would go to the games and they didn't even know which guy on the field I was. This was a position that came with absolutely no glory. I wanted to play a different position, but apparently my coach saw my skill sets fitting a different need that the team had. And I think that reminds us that sometimes it's hard for us to accept our role in this life. It's hard for us to be content with being put into positions where all your hard work is unnoticed. All, everything you do is behind curtains. And you have to see other people who get praise, get pats on the back. It's difficult for us to accept the roles and the gifts that God has given us sometimes. It's hard for us to find contentment in jobs that receive no applause. But I believe that our text this morning is going to teach us that when we become Christians, when we enter into the kingdom of God, we have to learn the difficulty of, fors of forsaking the applause of men. We have to forsake of all our vain glory in order to be citizens of God's kingdom. Learning to be content where God has placed us. In other words, we are called to put the church above ourselves. And we cannot despise the gifts that God has given us and we cannot despise members for having gifts that we want. And that is how we submit to God in the church. I think we see this in 1 Samuel chapter 30. Would you please turn there? 1 Samuel chapter 30. We are almost done with our sermon series through 1 Samuel. This is our second to last chapter. And we will read the whole thing together. 1 Samuel chapter 30. If you would follow along with me, beginning in verse 1, for these are the very words of God. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor, where those who were left behind stayed. 
But David pursued he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Bazor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of cake and figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the, a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and, and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man among them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to all the people, they greeted him. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do this. You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hands the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall all share alike. And he made it a statue and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negeb, in Jatir, in Eroer, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borshan, in the Athach, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. So if you recall from last week, David and his men were dismissed from doing battle with the Philistines. And the text tells us that they made their way home in three days and three nights. Now, it's difficult to sort of trace what kind of a pace they made because not every scholar uh, understands three days and three nights the same way. So it's hard to know exactly how long of a travel that was. But they would have traveled from where they were to home in Ziklag. They would have traveled up to, potentially up to 25 miles a day. So they made quite a quick pace. They exhausted themselves getting back home. And so as they come back home, what are they expecting? They're expecting to be home and to be with their families, to relax and rejoice that they didn't have to go and fight. But instead, they come home to calamity. They come home to fire. All the women and children who have been left behind have been kidnapped. And as far as they know, they're dead. 
And so obviously, these men who, this would have devastated them no matter what, but they're already emotionally compromised because they were exhausted from their journey. They begin to weep. And all the energy that they have left is expelled on weeping. They literally weep until they, they don't even have the strength or the emotions to weep any longer. And they even decide, this is David's fault. This is his job. And so they think, it's time to stone this man. <laughs> even though he's been faithful, protecting us for all this time, he's been a wonderful leader, he's made a mistake, it's time to stone this man. But David takes control of his emotions, and he does what any king of Israel would do, and that is consult the Lord. What do you do when you don't know what to do? Ask God, right? My wife and I have been talking, this is, I think, one of my spiritual weaknesses. It's amazing how quickly I jump to try to fix something before I seek the Lord. When things go wrong in your life, the first thing you should do is get on your knees. David seeks the Lord, and the Lord answers him, you should attack this band, and you will take them. So David and his men make a quick turnaround. And already exhausted men, these are, they're exhausted physically and emotionally, and they make a quick turnaround, and they go on a hunt. They go hunting for Amalekites. And they come up to a brook, and 200 of the 600 men, are, they just can't do it. They're exhausted. They've been traveling for constant three days. and They're emotional. They just can't do it. We can't cross. We can't fight. And rather than judging them or rebuking them or insulting them, David is perfectly understanding. He understands. And so he allows them to stay back. And 400 of his men press on. And then while they're pressing, the providence of God brings them an Egyptian. And here David shows even more compassion. He was compassionate with these 200 men. He was compassionate with his own people when they wanted to stone him and never holds that against them. But he sees this random Gentile, an enemy of the Lord, wandering half dead in the wilderness. And what does he do? He protects him. He feeds him. Remember, he does not know that this guy has information that he wants. That comes after. This is just out of the kindness and goodness of his heart. But it just so happens in the providence of God that this man does have information they want to know. It turns out he was a slave to the Amalekites and he was ditched cruelly by his master, left to die by his master because he got too sick and couldn't perform his duties. So after they help this man, they learn of that and he, under promise that he would be kept safe, leads them to the Amalekites. And this gives David the upper hand because now he gets to sneak up on them. So they find them wisely. They take a night of rest be good to sleep a little bit. And then in the morning, they attack. And they kill almost everyone and the rest flee. And then they get back not only their stuff, but apparently the Amalekites had been raiding a lot of places. So they get a lot more stuff. They, it's a net gain now at this point. But then what I think is really the important part of the story is on their way back, they find the 200 men who were left behind. And some of the people with David, whom the text refers to as worthless evil men, decide, you know what, this is not fair that they should get some of my spoil. They didn't fight. They're lazy and they stayed back so they can obviously have their wives and kids, but they don't get any spoil. And David gets very angry at this notion. David rebukes them, tells them that they're going to get their share of spoil, and then even establishes a new law in Israel that forever, that we will never treat our brothers this way. And so they all get an equal share. And then David goes back home and exhibits even more compassion by taking some of his spoil and giving it back to the cities of Israel that allowed him to wander when Saul was chasing him. He pays them back. Which 
before we uh, transition further, I just want to remind us of what an underrated quality compassion is for leaders. What I think often happens in leadership is anyone who's a leader to almost any capacity knows that sometimes you have to make hard choices. Sometimes to be a leader, you have to make choices that other people don't like. And so you can't be a people pleaser. You have to be willing to hurt people's feelings to be a leader. But the danger in that is that can grow out of control, where sometimes people begin as very competent leaders who make good, decisive decisions and just deal with the consequences. But over time, your heart gets hardened to that. And that eventually grows into you're just a tyrant. You're just a cruel tyrant who does whatever he wants or does whatever she wants and never cares about how it affects other people. David is an amazing leader. He's willing to make decisions. He's willing to do things that people don't want to do. But his primary leadership quality is compassion. And look how it rallies people. And so I just want to remind you as a side note, if you are a leader in any kind of capacity, whether it's in your job or at your home or anywhere, if you are a leader, never, ever, ever underestimate the power of compassion. And I want us to stick with that part of the text that we just got done talking about, the sharing of the spoil. I really do believe that when I first read through this, this seemed like something that could have been left out. Like, why did we need to know that some men stayed back and that when they came back, there was a fight that got settled pretty quickly? Like, couldn't the story have just been, they went, they found the Amalekites, they got the stuff back, they went home, big party. Why, why was it important for the author to spill ink over this little in-house fight? And I think because this really is actually the key to our sermon today. I think this is the key to the text. And the reason I think that is because the whole text is just basically narrative telling us what happens. But it's in this portion of the text where David speaks to us. It's where David reveals to us what he has learned. It's David essentially preaching to us. David becomes our pastor. And so I want us to look at when David opens his mouth, what does David say and how is that important? Look with me again at verses 23 and 24. Twenty-three and twenty-four. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share forgive me, for as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be with he who stays by the baggage. They shall all share alike. David is not going to deny these men their share of, of the spoil. And he gives us two reasons that we're going to elaborate on in a second as to why they deserve a share even though they didn't go fight. And the first reason is because the battle belonged to the Lord, not to the Israelites. You see, the Israelites, they don't even know that what the, operate, that what the assumption that they're operating on is we went to battle, we were skillful in war, we fought, and we won. We earned that spoil. These men did nothing, so they haven't earned it. And David's point is, we didn't earn it either. God told us to do this, and God told us we would win. God gave us victory as a gift. We did not earn victory, we received it. We received victory. We didn't earn this. You are no more deserving of that spoil than these guys are. You also did nothing. God gave us the victory. But then the second reason he gives is he also tells us that these men did not stay back and do nothing. 
When it's first told us earlier in chapter 30 that they say back, it says it's just because they were exhausted. But David knew that in the providence of God, they were actually doing something very important. What does it say? The end of 25. Or forgive me, 24. For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They had a job and they did their job. So they deserve a portion of the spoil. The victory belongs to the Lord and they did in fact do something. But we will elaborate on that a little bit more because first I want us to see how this applies so neatly and so well to the church. If I say that these few verses here are the key to our text and that David is teaching us something here, what is that? What do we learn from David's speech? And this is what we learn. This is sort of our thesis, our our entire main idea of what the sermon is about. Here's what we learn. Your role matters. Your role matters. Within the church, within the kingdom of God, your role matters for the same two reasons that David gave the spoil to those who stayed behind. First, remember David said, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. So again, David knew that the victory did not belong to man who were able to fight. The victory belonged to the Lord. They did not win because of their strength or their might or their skill. They won because of the mercy and power of God. And so likewise, why would I ever dare think more of myself than of you? What right do I have to consider my spiritual gift more important than yours? Because the same principle applies here. My gift is just that. It's from God. It's a gift. And your gift is just like that. It's from God. It's a gift. So we're really on the same playing field. No matter what my gift is, no matter what your gift is, we're really all on the same playing field. We are merely receiving from God. So why should I get more glory or more praise or a better reward? Why would I think myself better than you? It would be ridiculous. It would be inconsistent. We are all merely receiving and working out what God has given us. So that really evens the playing field. And the second reason, a little bit more pertinent, is what David knew that the men who stayed back were not doing nothing. They stayed with the equipment. And you might think that's just like a pat on the head. You might think that he's just grabbing at straws to try to make these men feel better. But let me stop you there. What happened the last time David took all the fighting men away from what was vulnerable? That's why they're in this predicament. They're in this predicament because David made an unwise choice as a king and he took everyone to battle and he left their children and their wives and their city vulnerable. You see, these men wanted to stay back because they were tired. But David knew. He learned from his mistake. I won't make this mistake again. We need people to stay back with our stuff. We need them to stay back with the things we cannot take across this river. They were doing something. They weren't fighting. But it's not like they were just sitting back and doing nothing. They had an important job to do. And the fact that David wanted to give them equal portion tells us his psychology. David does not think, yeah, they did a job, but it's not nearly as important as the job we did. We did the really important job. They did the really, really not that important job. So we'll divvy up the spoil. I'll do the calculations. I'll do the fair share. No. He said, we all did jobs and they were all important, so everyone's going to get paid. 
he tells us that psychology. Now, obviously, there are some jobs which have a different manifestation. There are jobs that do look better than others. There are gifts that do look from worldly appearances better than others. There are very important jobs, as so they look, but we need to realize from David that your contribution to the church is extremely important. It may not be as flashy as other people's. It may not be as in front of other people's. But your job in the kingdom of God is worthy of an equal share as all other gifts. I mean, certainly running off to war and coming back in victory seems much more important than guarding luggage or cooking meals or changing diapers. But David knew that while it looks way more important and way more courageous to run off into war, he knew that all of the duties that the people of Israel had were of crucial importance. Some might look greater, but they're not. He knew that some jobs just don't receive trophies or pats on the back or recognition at all, but they are worthy of every bit as glory as every other job. And that is the mentality you need to have in church. Perhaps the things that you do best are never seen. You don't get public admiration like miracle workers or missionaries or preachers or the lead singers. But your job is just as important. Every role matters. Now, here's what I want us to do. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 12. Everything that I've taught so far is technically deduction. I'm deducing this principle from the text. Unless you think I might be stretching, I want to see that we actually have this explicitly stated in our Bibles. This is going to be a long chapter, or a long section of the chapter that we're going to read, so please bear with me on that. It's important for us to get almost this whole thing in. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. First Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 4. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. And all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For if the body does not consist of one member, but of many, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? 
As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the many members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Let's stop there. Now, this text is obviously a bit too long for us to break it down in exhaustive detail as if we were preaching it. But allow me just to give you three summary points of what we just read. First, we see that every spiritual gift comes from the Spirit. You don't develop your own spiritual gifts. You don't create them. God, the Spirit, gives you your gifting to encourage and lift up and build up the church. And it is the Spirit, God the Spirit, who makes this decision himself. He apportions individually to each as he wills. It says that in more than one way throughout the chapter. So here's the thing. Here's what that means. When we despise our gift, when we despise what ends up being our role in a church, what we actually are doing, whether we know it or not, is we're calling the Spirit foolish. As if, you really messed this one up, bud. This should, I should not be this, in this position. I should be in that position. When we despise our gifts, when we're jealous of other people's gifts, we are offending God the Spirit. Because He gave you your gift. He gave you your role according to His wisdom, according to His knowledge. So we cannot despise our role. God has chosen that for us. That really should be seen as a blessing. And he chose it like he chose a body. Like every member serves a different part and some are, look different and some seem better than others. But we are unified in purpose. Our roles are different, but our goal is the same. We are unified in purpose and goal. And that is why your body has many parts, but it is still one. One body has many parts. The church has many members, but it is one. We do different things on a small scale, but we're all doing the same thing on a large scale. We're all working with the same goal. And this then leads to the second point that I want us to understand from the text, is that no one gets to say their gift is more important than another's. As Paul goes at length to say in his analogy, in his metaphor, we cannot look at another part and say, I have no need of you. We cannot look at another part and say, you're not as important as me. That was, that was what David's men did. That was exactly the fault of David's men. They cross the river, they see the men there, and they say, we have no need of them. They've done nothing. We don't have a need of them. This is the mistake they made. And Paul here reminds us, you don't get to do that. You don't get to look at any person in this church and think you're more important than them, that you have no need of them. So what's the other side of that? You're really important. You matter to this church. We are not allowed to think our gifts are more important to the others. And and again, I just want to reiterate why this is so important because it's, it's, it's easy to see this and agree with it in a sermon, but it gets really, really hard to believe this when you start examining other people's gifts and start maybe growing jealous of theirs. Because again, as we've noted, not all gifts look important. 
Even if we take it, stay in verse Corinthians 12, it's amazing how Paul will pair, and he does this in Romans 12, he does this more in a section we don't, he will pair miraculous gifts with unmiraculous gifts together as if they're all equal. You know, for example, as, as I read through all of the, the gifts in Scripture, certainly it's, it seems like some look more like riding off into war and saving women and children, and some look a little bit more like staying back with baggage. Right? And this is happening in the Corinthian church. This is what's causing some of their divide. Some gifts are seen by everyone and they impress the masses, while others are done with no audience and no praise. So again, the manifestations of our gifts are different, but as Paul tells us, they are all equal, at least to God, in serving the church. And so the, the third and final thing I want to say is it's important not to miss this, that every single Christian has at least one spiritual gift. It's not as if the Spirit gave gifts to some and then decided, ooh, sorry guys, I'm out of gifts. You should have, you know, first come, first serve. You ran out of time, sorry. It's not as if the Spirit looked upon any Christian and thought, ah, there's nothing I can do with him. Yeah, I, I can't not work with her. The text is very clear throughout. Every single believer has a gift. You have a role. It's extremely important. And sometimes what was happening in Corinthians, there was people who certainly would have rather had the gift of healing than the gift of discernment. There were Christians who would love to have had the gift of working miracles over the gift of administration. It's easy to despise our role, to be jealous of others, but God gave you that role. At least once. I would, I would bet most people have multiple spiritual gifts. So how can we summarize this long chapter, these three points, in an easier way to remember? We learn that everyone in this room has a gift from God. You are all capable of significantly contributing to the building up of our church. And your role matters, even though sometimes it might not feel like it. It's worthy of the same reward as all the others what you do in secret, which oftentimes feels mundane and boring and insignificant, is actually crucial to the survival of Redeemer Christian Fellowship. No one in this church, especially among leadership, has any right to look at anybody here and think, we have no need of you. The Bible does not give us permission to think that way. I don't give you permission to think that way. And that means in your own personal self, Others do not have the right to look at you and say, we have no need of you. And that means you don't have permission to look at yourself and think, I'm worthless. I bring nothing to the table. The Bible doesn't give you permission to think that way. You're very important. Our church needs you. Now, before we can conclude, there are two elephants in the room anytime you talk about spiritual gifts. There's two elephants that I, I, I want to briefly address. The first time... The first, anytime someone brings up a spiritual gifts, there's always this, uh, what we call the debate between continuationists and cessationists. I know those sound like big five-syllable words, but they're actually quite easy. There's a debate in the church about whether some of the gifts, the spiritual gifts that we just read, some of them were uh, specifically for the apostolic age, and when the apostles died, those went away. And so those people are called cessationists because they believe that some of the gifts have ceased. Right? And then the other group, the continuationists, that you know what that means now. They believe that all the gifts continue. So there's a big debate in the church over whether some gifts have ceased and some have continued. And that's a little far upfield for us today. That's not even really for a sermon. That would be like 
a whole sermon series. So I'm not going to address that today. But there's a second elephant in the room that is actually very important to what we're saying. And the second elephant in the room is, goes like this. And by the way, I've heard this throughout my ministry all the time. This is a constant thing that happens among churches, especially when you start talking about gifts. And people sit back and they hear, okay, you're telling me I have a gift. And you're telling me I have an important role. And it's always important, even if it doesn't seem important. And you're calling me to exercise my gift for and with the church. And that's all true. But then what's the next question people ask? What, I, what if I don't know my gift? What is my gift? I'd be willing to bet that most people in this room have given very little thought to what my gift is. I bet you most people in this room don't even know what their gift is. And churches recognize this. This is why there was a huge movement for a long time where before you could become a member of a church, they would give you a spiritual gift test. It was like a personality test, but it tried to figure out your spiritual gifts. And so people would ask questions. And it's, it's really not very effective. It's really easy to see where they're going. So you can kind of create your gift by answering the questions that you want to. Um, I don't really find value in spiritual gift tests. But I find value in what's underneath them. I, I do. I find value in pastors saying, our, we want our people to exercise their gifts in the church. They, we're not helping them learn what it is, so we're going to help them. I, I do relate to wanting people to know and learn their spiritual gift. And here's how I look at this situation. It might sound a little counterintuitive, but I think it's true. I think we've taken far too, of a, too much of a scientific, rigid approach to spiritual gifts. The uh, immediate assumption is that I can't exercise my gift until I learn it. I have to know what it is before I can put it to work. So you have to learn it first and then you exercise it. I'm of the exact opposite mind. I think that's entirely backward. I think most people learn their gifts through exercising them. You don't learn and then get to work. You get to work and you learn. So in other words, here's my suggestion. I would want to release you from the burden of not knowing your spiritual gift. I want to release you of the burden of taking test after test after test to try to determine your spiritual gift. Here's rather what you should do. Just serve. Just get involved and help your church. As doors open that need to be filled, if you think you have a willingness and an ability to do it, then fill that. If someone needs help, help them. If there's a way you can serve the church, then serve. And here's what happens. As you just give yourself to the church, as you just give yourself to members, and you, you spend time serving and loving and helping, over time what ends up happening is you start to realize the things you really, really enjoy doing. You start to realize the things you're good at. Sometimes, yeah, I tried to help there, I, I tried to serve there, and it, it didn't really work. That's okay. Okay, I'm not fit for that job. But you get to work. You pour yourself out to the church. And over time, the Spirit begins to reveal to you what you're good at and what you enjoy doing. So you don't need to learn your gift and get to work. You just need to get to work. And you will find things that you're passionate about, things that you're good at. So just serve the church. Serve where you can. And here's the best thing about this practice. Let's say that the Lord never reveals it to you. You go to your grave not knowing your spiritual gift. Guess what you just did? You just lived a life of serving the church. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is that you might not know your gift. You may never know your gift, but the Spirit does. And if you put yourself to work, He will use it. You will use your spiritual gifts through serving, and you may never know what it was specifically. But that's okay. So don't put too much pressure on yourself to go through the list in the Bible and figure out, I'm this, and I'm this, and I'm not this. Just love your church. Just serve where you can, serve where you're able, and I think God will make it real to you, available to you, over time. 
But let's close things. As we began, it is a difficult aspect of the Christian life to let go of your desire for worldly glory. It's hard to work in the background where no one sees you and no one recognizes you. But the gift that you exercise was given to you by the Spirit, and that makes it so important. In all the work you do, keep in mind, all the work you do behind closed doors is not hidden from everyone's eyes. Your Father in heaven sees you. He sees you. And He is proud of you. And He loves you. He is proud of you and He loves you because He sees you. He sees your work. He sees all the work you do and He is proud. He is proud whether you are cleaning or building, singing or playing. Whether you are encouraging members or praying for members. He is proud of you if you're teaching or preaching or watching our children in the nursery. He is proud of you when you are correcting and uplifting. Whether you are mowing the lawn, running PowerPoints, setting the budget, counseling the younger men and women, showing courage during times of distress, evangelizing your neighbors, engaging in community service, opening up your homes to show hospitality, making meals for the sick, or visiting the homebound. Whatever you do is crucial to the survival of our church, which means it's crucial to the advancement of the kingdom of God in Roswell.